Well, before we look into God's word, let us speak with him and ask for his help. Heavenly Father, we do indeed thank you again for your word. It is a wonderful privilege to have it before us, but we do need your help in understanding it. We pray that you may use me this morning, that you may speak through me, that these words may not be mine, but they may be yours, and that the message that I speak may impact upon the hearts of those present this morning, that it may not just go into their heads, but it may go down deep, and that it may be life-changing, that it may transform hard hearts to know and trust and love you more and to serve you as best they can. And we pray this in your son's name. Amen. What does it mean to have an attitude? What does it mean to have an attitude? What does it mean to have a good attitude? What does it mean to have a bad attitude? I remember one time that it was implied that I had a bad attitude towards a certain someone. It was uh, when I was working, going through university, I had a part-time job at Target. And I, you know, it was sort of a love-hate relationship with the Target job that I kind of, uh, I liked it because, you know, that's the way I got money. And I had friends there, and that's how I met Jill. She was another staff member. But I I didn't like it that much either. I, I sort of despised going there. And so one of my pet things to enjoy myself while I was there was that I would try and prove the Target managers wrong. So they would say something and I would try and show that I was smarter than them and prove them wrong. And I remember once the store manager, so not just a regular sort of department manager, the store manager, the head honcho, the, the highest up person in the store in Campbelltown, she, uh, she said, if you're right, Joel, then I'm a goat. And so then subsequently I went out of my way to try and prove her wrong, that what she had said wasn't correct at all. And then once I proved it to her, she sort of looked at me and I started to make the noise <laughs> towards her. And, uh, and one of the other casual employees, an older woman, but like me, just a casual, said, Joel, I believe there's a line and I think you've crossed it. She was saying something about my attitude towards this store manager, that I had a bad attitude, that there was a line and that I had crossed it and I was showing that I had a bad attitude towards her. And that's what we're looking at this morning, is we're looking at attitudes. We're looking at those attitudes that God blesses and vice versa, if we look at what the opposite of those attitudes are, then we know that we don't have his blessing. And so we want to know what are those attitudes that God blesses. There are lines and they can be crossed. What are the lines that God draws and that we have towards him and towards those around us, those attitudes that we have towards him and those towards uh, those around us. Because last week we looked at the first four of these Beatitudes from Matthew chapter 5, and we saw that those are the attitudes that are primarily aimed towards God. So they're our vertical relationship towards God and the way that we are meant to relate to him. And so they were, blessed are the poor in spirit, so we recognised our poverty of spirit, that we are poor when it comes to spiritual matters and then we saw it's blessed are those who mourn, those who mourn over their sin towards God, blessed are they who are meek and so it showed that we submitted to God, there was an attitude of meekness towards God and then there was blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness 
And so we saw that those who are meant to have an attitude towards God, they're meant to have this attitude of hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Whereas this week we're looking at those attitudes that we're meant to have to those around us, our horizontal attitudes. And there's four of those as well. And so they run from verse 7, verse 8, verse 9, and then verse 10 has, introduces the one about blessed are those who are persecuted. And then it seems that Jesus uh, elaborates on that one and goes into 11 and 12 to po- talk about persecution in greater detail. Now I was going to do four last week and four this week. But as I was uh, preparing this sermon, uh, there's so much good material here that either I was going to have a, a whole lot and drag out the time uh, and uh, that you guys would be long-suffering or what I would naturally do is tend to speak very quickly and cram it all in so that it would still take the same time but it would uh, be compressed. Uh, but So what I did, I actually broke it up. So this week we're going to look at uh, the first two, verses 7 and 8, and next week we're going to look at the second, uh, the third and fourth attitude that we have towards those around us, that of peacemaking and of persecution. So this week we're looking at those two attitudes here in verse 7 and verse 8. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. So the first one is, Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. The first attitude we're meant to have is that of mercy. How do you show mercy? How do you show mercy to those around you? Well, firstly, if you want to show mercy to those around you, the best thing you can do is first obtain mercy from God for yourself. We all need mercy from God and that's what the other first four attitudes have been building on is that we're recognising our sinfulness and our need for mercy from God. And so the best thing, if you want to show mercy to those around you, you need to experience mercy yourself. Those people who have been shown mercy are very good at showing mercy to those around them. And you see that with the way that ads on TV try to get you to give to charities, to be merciful to charities. They try to put you in that position where you start to think about what it would be like to be in that situation. And so you start to put yourself in those shoes and think what it would be like and you want to and you want to give because you know what it would be like to be in that situation. And it's the same with showing mercy yourself. If you know what it is to experience mercy, then you're very good at showing mercy to those around you. And that is the case when it comes to our relationship with God. If we have been shown mercy from God, if God has forgiven us of our sins, we have come before him and asked for mercy and he has shown mercy and he has alleviated the pain and suffering that comes as a consequence of our sin, then we are very keen to see that happen in the lives of those around us. We're keen to see them forgiven for their sins. We're keen to see them uh, have their pain and suffering alleviated, the suffering that comes as a result of sin. So if you want to show mercy to people around you, firstly, you have to follow those first four Beatitudes and obtain mercy for yourself then you'll be excellent at showing mercy to those around you. One of the dangerous things with these Beatitudes is you start to rip them out of context and they start to become like uh, greeting cards that you you put this little uh, quirky phrase on there, something that sounds nice, and you rip it completely out of context. No, if you want to show mercy, you must have experienced mercy beforehand because then you will be very good at showing mercy yourself. And so then once you obtain that mercy from God, 
What's the next thing you do? Well, you start to show mercy. How do you show mercy to those around you? Well, one of the best ways of showing mercy is to forgive others when they sin against you. To show mercy to those people who have sinned against you because that is what you have experienced from God. He has been merciful to you. You have come to him and confessed your sin and asked for mercy. And does he turn you away and say, no, no mercy for you? No, he's been gracious and kind and forgiven you. And so when someone comes to you and asks for mercy, asks that their sin may be forgiven, what are you to do? Are you to say, no, no mercy for you? I expect mercy from God, but I don't give mercy out to those who sin against me? No. You're meant to show mercy to them. You're meant to be merciful and forgive their sins. And this is a bold statement for Jesus to say that we're meant to forgive others when they sin against us because it is something that goes completely against what the world advises. The world says that revenge is sweet, that you get revenge on those who have wronged you. When someone sins against you, you make sure you get them back for what they have done. And so you hold people accountable. You try and work out why you've got a problem in your life and who's responsible for it. That's what popular psychology does. That's what Freudian psychology does. You start to look back into your life and see who's to blame for the state that you're in at the moment. You try to find out who's accountable for it. You look back to maybe it was your parents. Maybe they weren't very kind to you. Maybe they smacked you a lot. Maybe they were unreasonable with you. And so they're the reason that you are the way you are today and you hold them accountable. Or maybe it was your school teachers. You go back into your life and you think about who is responsible? Who can I hold accountable for the way that I am today? For the suffering that I may be experiencing? Maybe it was the kids in the playground at school. The other kids at school are the reason. And so you go back and you try to find Who is responsible? And if you can, you try and hold them responsible. This is what the world of lawyers knows, isn't it? You go and you hold people responsible. Lawyers wouldn't have a job if everyone showed mercy to those around them. If everyone was forgiving and let things go, they wouldn't have a job because the job of a lawyer is to get back dollar for dollar what is owed to the person. There is no forgiveness, no one. I remember this with uh, another guy at Target who was studying at at university and uh, he was working there as well and he was studying law. And he said, whenever you have a situation on the the, um, floor when you're out there working with the public and you do something wrong and you may injure someone, he said, never say sorry. Because as soon as you say sorry, you admit culpability, you admit liability and that then he just he couldn't comprehend that there might be mercy involved, that the person may see that you're sorrowful and they may say, OK, that's all right, you know, you, you ran over my toe, that's OK, it'll be all right. No, they, they would want to sue you. That's the logical conclusion. People aren't merciful. You go and you get revenge as much as you can. You don't show mercy as Jesus says we should. And so, what is the attitude that God requires, that he approves of, the world approves of getting revenge? Jesus approves of those who are merciful, those who are quick to forgive others. And the other way that we can show mercy? Well, it's to alleviate pain and suffering. 
That's the other logical way that we can alleviate, uh, that we can show mercy, is by alleviation of pain and suffering. Pain and suffering is a consequence of sin. It shouldn't be here. It wasn't intended. It wasn't there in the garden. But when Adam and Eve sinned, pain and suffering entered into the world as a consequence of their sin. And so it continues to be here today. As we continue to sin, pain and suffering continues to be in the world. And we want to see that alleviated. We have a righteous desire to see that alleviated. And so we want to show mercy to those around us. We want to see that pain and suffering that they're experiencing lifted, that consequence of sin lifted. And so this is where the charities of the world come in that we can help alleviate pain and suffering. So we can adopt orphans, we can help widows, we can help those people who are in grave financial needs, that they're just starving over in other countries, that they have severe illnesses without the medical care that we enjoy here, that we can give a small amount of money and blindness can be cured in many cases and that so much of their, uh, their illnesses can be cured if we give and we help out by showing mercy to them. And this is a radical statement as well. You may not think that it's a radical statement to want to show mercy, to alleviate pain and suffering of others, but what does the world teach? What does evolutionary Darwinism teach? It teaches survival of the fittest. The fit ones survive and they deserve to live. If you give of yourself to those who are suffering around you, you're hampering yourself. You're holding yourself back and really they don't deserve to live. They've been a burden. They should die because they, it's survival of the fittest. That's the idea that's there. And you see that with, <coughs> with Hitler. Going, um, he didn't persecute the Jews at first. I mean, he always seemed to hate the Jews. But one of his other things of cleansing was eugenics. That he started to, they had posters up in Germany saying life unworthy of life on them and they would have a picture of a disabled person and it would say how, how many Deutschmarks uh, it cost you per day for that person to be alive. How much of that lifetime of that person being alive in your country was costing you. And so they started to put to death those people who were severely disabled, the mentally ill, they'd put them to death, they'd gas them so that they weren't a burden upon the society anymore, so that the fit ones would survive. The fit ones would have enough money so that they could survive. Where does that fit in with Jesus' teaching? It's the complete opposite. They aren't showing mercy to those around them. It teaches you, do not show mercy. Survival of the fittest. And that's the same that some other religions logically conclude as well that you don't show mercy to others around you. The, any religion that believes in reincarnation in the sense that reincarnation, as you come back in the next life, you are what you were in the previous life. If you were a terrible person in the previous life, well, you're going to come back as a sick and suffering person in the next life. You're going to come back as someone who is poor. And so really, if you follow the logic of reincarnation through to its logical conclusion, it means that you don't help those who are poor and suffering around you because they deserve it. They have sinned in the previous life, so why would you go and alleviate the consequences to their sin? They're meant to be redeeming themselves by being sick and suffering and poverty stricken. 
and so there is not really a need to show mercy to them because they are paying for the consequences of their sin. Why would you show a murderer who has come back and is now a poverty-stricken child, why would you show them mercy? They're paying off what they did in the previous life. And so that runs against what Jesus said as well. He says, be merciful. The God of Christianity loves mercy. He loves his people to show mercy to those around them. Why do you show mercy? Why should you show mercy? Why should you have this attitude of mercy? Because you expect to be shown mercy yourself. What does the Beatitude say? Verse 7 of Matthew chapter 5. If you've got a Black Pew Bible, page 958. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. If you expect to be shown mercy on that judgment day, you must be merciful in this lifetime. Now what does that mean? Does it, some people take that verse and they say, look, here's salvation by works. If I show mercy, God is obligated to forgive me. He's obligated to show mercy to me because I was so much in helping the poor. I forgave everyone around me, so God is obligated to forgive. But this is to rip it out of its context that if you go back to the first beatitude, you recognise that you've got all that that you do, all the mercy that you do, still puts you in poverty of spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit. We can never come to God with a rich spirit and say, look how good I am. I deserve mercy. No, instead, we come to him and ask him for mercy and then we show mercy to those around us as a way of expressing that we have received mercy ourselves. What is the best way to show mercy? Well, get mercy for yourself and then you will be merciful to those around you. You need to have mercy first to then start to show mercy to those around you. And that is an expression of the mercy that you have received. This is just fruit of your faith. It is not a way of earning uh, your way into heaven. It is simply an expression of the fruit of that faith that you have that is known mercy. What is the best way to show that you're a Christian? What is the best way of knowing personally that you're a Christian? Well, it's if you're quick to forgive others, if you're quick to be merciful to those around you. It shows that you truly know what it means to have repented of your sins, to know what it is to be forgiven is greatly expressed in the way that you are quick to be merciful to those around you. So are you known for this attitude of mercy? Are you known to be quick to forgive, quick to alleviate the pain and suffering of those around you? Maybe you think you are. What about if I asked your family? Is so-and-so quick to forgive? Go into your workplace. Is so-and-so quick to forgive? What would they say? Or would they see you as someone who is always trying to get revenge, get back what is owed you? If you expect to be shown mercy on that judgement day, then you must show the fruit of experiencing mercy yourself and showing mercy to those around you. So that's the first beatitude. The second beatitude that we're looking at this morning is verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. How do you become pure in heart? Well, firstly, you need a pure heart. You need a new heart 
put in. That's what Ezekiel talks about. He talks about having a, a new heart, a heart of flesh being put in and a heart of stone being taken out. We all start with impure hearts. We need a whole new heart put in. And the way to get a whole new heart is by faith, is by those first four Beatitudes, recognising your poverty of spirit, believing in him, mourning over your sin, being meek and hungering and thirsting for righteousness. And then you are given a clean heart if you put your faith in him. And this is what Acts 15 verse 9 tells us. Acts 15 verse 9. If you've got a black pew Bible, it's on page 1094. Peter's standing up and speaking at the council at Jerusalem and he says in verse 9 about the Gentiles to these other Jews, Acts 15 verse 9, he, that is God, made no distinction between us and them, that is Jews and Gentiles, for he purified their hearts by faith. If you wish to have a pure heart, You need to have faith first and foremost. You need to believe in Jesus Christ as the saviour of your sins, that his death on the cross was a payment for your sins. And then work at having a pure heart. Live up to that pure heart that you were given. If you've believed in Jesus Christ, then you are called to show that you have a pure heart, to start developing fruit and letting it blossom in your life. Start living up to that new heart that you have. And how do you do that? By cleansing it of the moral filth that is so prevalent within it. What is the moral filth? Well, Matthew 15, verse 19 speaks about this. Matthew 15, verse 19, page 971, if you've got a Black Pew Bible. What comes out of the heart? Matthew 15, verse 19, For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. These things come from where? From the outside? No, they come from inside. They come from the heart. And if we want a pure heart, then we need to cleanse our heart of these things of these things that well up and show themselves. It's not good enough, Jesus is saying, to cleanse the outside of moral filth. You have to be pure in heart. You can't just be pure on the outside. And he criticises the Pharisees for doing this. Jesus really gets stuck into them. He calls them whitewashed tombs. He says, you hypocrites, you are whitewashed tombs. What's a whitewashed tomb? Well, it's a place that you put dead bodies and it's clean on the outside but on the inside it's full of deadness and uncleanliness, dirtiness because the Jews understood that dead bodies were associated, the law teaches that it's unclean to touch a dead body. And so Jesus is saying, you Pharisees, you're like whitewashed tombs. You've cleaned up the outside but inside you're full of deadness and uncleanliness. You haven't cleaned up the inside. You've put some nice paint on the tomb and you may put out a little garden and make it all look very beautiful on the outside, but inside you're still filthy. If we, and he calls us not to just be pure on the outside, he calls us to be pure on the inside. And so we need to clean ourselves up. Are you externally clean but internally unclean? Do you let impure thoughts dwell on the inside 
They may not ever make it to the outside in any kind of action, but they dwell there and you're happy to let them dwell there. Jesus in the rest of the Sermon on the Mount really gets stuck into this, that people who, uh, who lust after a woman are committing adultery in their hearts. They may never act on it, but they're guilty of adultery. And if you hate someone, then you're guilty of murder. You may not have killed them, but you're guilty on the inside, in your heart, of murder. We need to clean up the inside of our hearts. We need to work at that pure heart that Christ has given us. He's given us a pure heart. When God looks at us, he sees us as having a pure heart because of what Christ has done. But we need to live up to that pure heart that we have. How do you clean up the inside of your heart? Well, you pray to God and ask for him to help. You need God's help to overcome any kind of sin. It is he who can overcome the sin. And so you need to pray to him and ask for help. And then I have my own personal method. It's called the no, no, no method. Uh, I use it personally. I came up with it and so I've got a patent on it. But whenever something comes into my heart that's impure, that I start to dwell on something I shouldn't have, I shouldn't be, that a desire to hate someone, anything impure that comes into my heart, I just go no, no, no and try and change my thinking. I say no to it. I rebuke it as much as I can. We need to ask God for help, but then we need to take an active role as well in saying, no, 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 I've got to have a right desire. It's not good enough to just clean up the outside. We need to clean up the inside. So we don't just look at what those things are around us that we can appear like we're clean on the inside. We need to clean up where no one else sees except God. So when you come to church, as everyone expects you to do on Sunday if you're a Christian, do you begrudgingly say in your heart, I'd rather be doing something else. I'd rather be watching the television. And even now while you sit in the sermon, you know everyone's watching you and thinking, oh yes, uh, they're listening to the sermon like they should. But even now, you're thinking about something totally different. You're thinking about what you're going to have for lunch. You're thinking about what you're going to do this afternoon. You need to clean up that part of you that only God can see. You need to clean up your heart Why do you need to clean up your heart? Well, what's the other part of the verse? It says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. We need a pure heart if we're to see God. What does it mean to see God? Well, that's one of those things that's very difficult to answer as to whether we will actually see God. Uh, It seems in the Old Testament whenever sort of God appears to someone there's still a veil, there's still a hand covering when Moses gets to see uh, God he only gets to see the back of God he doesn't get to see God completely but here we're told we will see God what does it mean to see God then? Well, we can see God in many ways. We can see God in the things that he does, in his works, in creation, the way he works in our own hearts, the way he's working in the hearts of others. We can see God working in people, working in ourselves, working in those around us. And we see that if we have pure hearts. We see God starting to work in those around us and we recognise that it's God's work and that God is there, God is present we start to see him and we start to understand creation. We look up at the stars and say, that's God's. We look at the trees, the gardens, the plants. We say, that's God's. We start to comprehend things. We start to see God. And then one day, yes, we will go to heaven and we will see God in Jesus Christ. 
we will be there dwelling with him. In him all the fullness of God dwells. He is the image of the invisible God. We hunger after images as sinful creatures. We want something concrete. We like images. Well, there is the image of the invisible God and he is Jesus Christ and we will see him in heaven if we have pure hearts. If we ask Jesus for a pure heart by the cross and then we start to show evidence that we have a pure heart by the way that we live and the way that we know our own hearts, that we start to overcome sins in our hearts, that we start to not have as many evil thoughts all the time. We still have evil thoughts, but they're not as common. We start to conquer them. We start to see proof that Jesus has indeed given us a pure heart. And this kind of makes sense. We need a pure heart to see something. We need something clean to see something. Because I, I think about the, the windscreen on the car. If that's completely dirty, I can't see through it and something terrible will happen. And I think that's why whenever I pull over for petrol, Jill gets out and wipes the windscreen. She's very good at it. She's always diligent. As soon as I get out and put the thing in, she's out of the car wiping the windscreen. And I sometimes wonder whether it's because she's been very kind to me or whether it's she thinks something else about my driving skills and so she's trying to reduce the probability of an accident, of something seriously uh, wrong occurring and so she's quickly getting it done so that I will be able to see as clearly as possible. She's reducing the odds because something serious will happen if I don't have a pure windscreen, if I don't have a clean windscreen, I will have an accident and can cause serious injury. And it's the same with us and God. If we don't have a clean heart, Jesus says, you will not see God. Something serious will happen. Serious consequences come from not having a pure heart. And that consequence is not seeing God, which means a complete absence of God, which is what hell is. It's a removal of God from your life. Complete absence of all his blessings. Non-Christians still experience the presence of God here in this world. They experience his blessings. He continues to send rain down upon the righteous and the unrighteous. But when they get to that judgment throne, if they do not have a pure heart, they will have all his blessings removed. They will have his presence removed and they will not see God. Serious consequences come from not having a pure heart. So, what is Jesus asking you this morning with these two Beatitudes? He says, have you seen mercy towards others in your own life after asking for mercy from God yourself? If yes, then you will be shown mercy on that judgment day. He says, have you seen evidence that you have a pure heart after first asking for one? Have you asked for a pure heart and then seen evidence that you have a pure heart, that you are starting to overcome the things in your heart? Then he says, you will see God. But if you say, no, I have never asked God for mercy for my sin and suffering. I have not seen evidence that I am willing to be merciful to those around me because God has seen, shown me mercy, then Jesus says you are not blessed. You are, do not have God's approval. You do not have his blessing and you will not be shown mercy on that judgment day. 
Maybe you say, no, I've never asked God for a pure heart and I've never seen evidence of overcoming sin in my own heart. What does Jesus say? You are not blessed. You will not see God on that judgement day. You will be cast out of his presence forever. If that is you, you answer no to those two questions, then don't delay. Ask him for mercy today and then start to look for an attitude of mercy in your own life. Start to show mercy to those around you. Be quick to forgive. Be quick to show mercy to alleviate suffering of those around you. Start, ask him today for a pure heart through the cross and then start to see evidence that you have that pure heart, that you start to overcome those things in your heart and that you start to see the outside of yourself uh, pure as well because you're overcoming those evil things in your heart. Let us speak with him now. Heavenly Father, we do indeed thank you once again for this Sermon on the Mount that has such profound words that do go against so much of what the world teaches us. We thank you that you have told us to be merciful because we have experienced your mercy. That one way we can know that we have experienced your mercy, your forgiveness, is by our willingness to be merciful to those around us. We pray that we may indeed be so, that we may willingly forgive people and that we may want to see the suffering as a result of pain, of, of sin, removed from people's lives. Lord, we also pray that we may indeed have evidence that we have pure hearts through the way that we gradually put to death the sin in our own hearts and that our outside starts to be pure, our actions start to be pure because we have a pure heart, because we have gradually put to death so many of the sins within it. And then we know that we will see you, O Lord. We thank you that we will have the opportunity to be in your presence and that we will go through into heaven and be with you forever. We pray that we will look for signs of you in our own lives and those around us, that we will see God in everything around us and that we will know that that is a result of the pure heart that we have in Jesus Christ. And we pray this in your Son's name. Amen.